Blog Talk Radio. Mike here. Well, <clears throat> welcome everyone. You're listening to This Week in Accountable Care brought to you by Zanate Media, digital content originators in service of the healthcare triple aim, which is better user experience, improve outcomes at lower per capita costs. I'm your host and producer of the series, Greg Masters, known to some on Twitter as Two Health Guru and the publisher of Industry Watchdog. ACOWatch.com. We're broadcasting today from San Diego, California, on Wednesday, October the 17th, 2012. And on today's broadcast, I'm delighted, if he shows up, to offer you J.D. Kleinke. J.D. Kleinke is a resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute and a pioneering excuse me, a pioneering healthcare information entrepreneur, medical economist, author, and business strategist. J.D. has helped create four healthcare information organizations, served on numerous healthcare company boards, worked with hospitals, health systems, physician groups, and drug companies, and provided business product and technology startup strategy services to startups and established companies. His latest book is Catching Babies, an intricately crafted novel told from the point of view of young doctors inside an academic OBGYN service. So as a my watch here, I don't see Jay yet, uh, excuse me, JD yet in the queue here. So let me uh, apprise you that I have been after J.D. some time to go on the record with his insights into the health reform conversation. And most recently that it looked like a, a chat in the hallways at the Health Data Palooza in D.C. last June. And if you recall, at that time we were in the throes of the eagerly anticipated Supreme Court ruling on the Affordable Care Act. At that time, J.D. thought it would be best to wait for some kind of decision so we would have clarity as to which way the wind was going to blow here in health reform, whether the Affordable Care Act was going to survive intact or what was going to be selectively deconstructed. Let's see here. So I think I have some pinging going on here, but it's not from JD. Anyway, um that decision obviously we're 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 beyond the decision. We know it's standing, the Affordable Care Act, and it has direct implications for the accountable care industry both in macro and micro terms, local footprints versus sort of national broad brush initiative. Yet we are, I think I'm being joined now from by J.D. Clanky. Let's see if that's J.D. 
JD, is that you? <clears throat> JD? Am I muted? There you go. I hear not, something now. I'm not JD. I'm not oh, JD. Okay. I thought I was confused. I'm just calling in. Uh, oh, great. Okay. Thought I'd check, but glad to have you. So um, I will go ahead and put you on mute if you don't mind it for the time being. Yeah. Um, I met JD a couple of weeks ago at the Health 2.0 conference, and I, I follow his work, so I just oh. thought I'd call in listening. Well, great. Uh, well, who's talking? My name is Bobby Glad. I'm with the Nevada-Utah Regional Extension Center for the Meaningful Use Program. Oh, Bobby, I think we met in the uh, in the lobby at Health 2.0. There's so many people like <laughs> Yeah, yeah. So, I, um, I understand. Was that your first conference? Uh, first Health 2.0, yeah. Yeah, okay. Great. Yeah, it's a lot of intensity there. So uh, we are waiting for J.D. to show up. And uh, I was uh, thanks for calling in. Uh, hopefully he'll he'll make it here. But uh, I was going through the background um, as to the context for 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 this chat, and it um, had to do with essentially what we were looking at back in June, which was the impending uh, Supreme Court decision on the Affordable Care Act. We're past that. We now know that uh, what we're looking. Okay, I think JD has joined the conversation. Okay. JD, is that you? It is me, Greg. Sorry, I'm a little, running a little late today. Okay, great. Well, uh, thanks for thanks for showing up. And uh, I was just going through, um, uh, read your background in bio, and uh, introduced the uh, context for the chat today. Primarily, uh, the conversation we had in D.C. Uh, before the Supreme Court had ruled on the Affordable Care Act. So, so now now we're on the other side of that, and. Um, uh, uh, so he, let me pick up with the fact you have recently authored two timely pieces that we'll touch on today. The first was a, an opinion piece in the New York Times titled The Conservative Case for Obamacare, which got quite a bit of uh, notoriety, perhaps in some cases blowback, especially coming from a conservative think tank, uh, i.e. The, uh, the AEI, the American Enterprise Institute, and then a second wrap-up prose that you titled Hate Known Spender Following the Health 2.0 DC and DC to VC events just concluded in San Francisco. So before you outline the conservative case for Obamacare, where are we at in this unfolding health reform drama, and can you broadly cast the range of alternatives on the table? Well, yeah, and it's funny you had mentioned the Supreme Court drama, and there was a tremendous amount of suspended animation leading up to that. It actually became very difficult uh, here in Washington to get anything done because for months it became, well, when the Supreme Court knocks it down. After the case itself in March, um, uh, a whole lot of people jumped to a conclusion. Uh, the media, of course, jumped to the same conclusion, and it was erroneous some minutes after they started, uh, Justice Roberts started to, to announce it, because everyone just assumed uh, that it would be struck down, or at least the, the, the guts of it in the form of the mandate would be struck down. And so for months, we all sort of sat around and, and stared at each other and said, well, we'll wait till, you know, we'll wait till make decisions and business deals and all that stuff until after that happens. That didn't happen. Uh, everybody was caught by surprise uh, on that one. And now the same th a little bit of the same thing is going on with regard to the election. 
Um, everybody, and I think this is probably affecting many industries and many folks around the country, everybody's looking, all eyes are on November 6th, and what's going to happen? Will the president be reelected? Will Governor Romney be elected yeah. instead? And, and as that plays out in health reform, um, it, there, are, there are actually three scenarios, not two, um, one of which is that President Obama is reelected at full speed ahead on the plan. The other scenario is that Governor Romney is elected, uh, but the Senate stays in Democratic control, um, and the House stays where it is, uh, and a repeal would not be possible um, politically in terms of procedurally. Um, under that scenario, however, that doesn't mean health reform is full speed ahead. It means a whole lot of things can slow its implementation, uh, authorization, um, financing, all that stuff um, can just basically slow down if folks, if the administration turns over significantly. There's there's a lot of disruption. Um, in anticipation of new appointments and all that stuff that goes on in Washington. The third scenario, of course, is that um, uh, Governor Romney is elected and the Senate flips over as well, in which case um, there would be a repeal. So those are really the three scenarios. Um, more, than, more than one scenario is very good for a good excuse for paralysis and uh, navel-gazing and arguing and yelling and all the other things that, that make politics so delightful. Um, but... Uh, that's kind of where we are right now. Um, I think not just here in Washington, but I think around the country. So, um, and let me just, and by way of affiliation, you had mentioned there was a lot of pushback on my piece in the New York Times from uh, the American Enterprise Institute. I want to clarify, I'm a, I'm happily a resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, and I think one of the reasons there was a tremendous amount of um, difficulty with that piece is it was perceived as coming from within a camp. Um, uh, and and we're not a camp at AEI. We are a diversity. We have a diversity of opinion, and we are a ruthlessly independent think tank. And even among um, healthcare scholars here, and I'm just one of several, we have a lot of differences of opinion about this stuff. Um, this is a fifth of the economy. There are no easy answers, and there really isn't a party line. Uh, and two of the other AEI health policy scholars here uh, don't like the mandate. At all, and um, uh, based on some, um, you know, very from, from their perspective, very defensible intellectual grounds. And I pointed out uh, in that piece what nobody really wanted to hear uh, on the right side of the aisle, which is that that mandate actually was formulated by Republicans themselves and by at the Heritage Foundation. Uh, and um, that was a long time ago, and politics sort of changed. Uh, they they helped create a lot of amnesia for folks. Um, and that's why the, the the difficulty there. But I just wanted to make sure everyone on 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 with us today understands that that is my affiliation. So. No, no I, I appreciate the clarification, and, and and I meant blowback only in the sense that it, there was tremendous resonance, and uh, just superficially for someone to say, and he's at the American Enterprise Institute. What up with that? You know. So I got it. It's like one seventh the economy, diversified yeah. opinion, even inside of think tanks who are occasionally identified as leaning one way versus the other. So let's talk a little bit about uh, uh, about the case, the conservative case for the Affordable Care Act. Give us some insight there. Well, and that was the, the main point of my argument there was that the two, um, the main point were just in terms of substance of, of the Obama plan, the, you know, two of the really four foundational points of that are um, you've got to have uh, people have to participate. They can't freeload on the system anymore. They can't roll the dice, wait till they're sick, and show up in the emergency room. That is freeloading, ironically. That is uh, people rolling the dice and depending on a nanny state that will take care of them when their bet goes wrong. 
uh, we subsidize that, you and I, and every taxpayer subsidizes that with um, uh, all the tax advantages that the nonprofits have. We subsidize that in the form of uh, markups for everything the hospital charges us directly, everything they charge our insurance companies indirectly. Uh, we're all paying for a safety net right now. And those who choose to buy cable TV or a better car or whatever else they're doing with their money, if they can, now there, I know there are other groups, but if they can afford insurance and choose not to buy it because it's expensive and they feel they're healthy and fine, um, that is not taking in personal responsibility. That is basically counting on EMTALA and the nanny state to take care of them, EMTALA being the federal law that requires the emergency room to take care of them. Uh, and so the idea of, of basically forcing people, it sounds very paradoxical, forcing people to take on individual responsibility and carry their own insurance is a conservative idea. It's like don't rely on the nanny state, don't count on EMTALA, take care of yourself, buy your own insurance. Now, there are people obviously who can't afford it. We've got to deal with that. And there are people who have been excluded from the system because they're sick, and we're taking care of that as well. That is one of the other four foundational corners of Obamacare. I'm really pointing out that the idea of having people buy their own insurance is actually a fairly conservative idea. Um, the second point of those four points that I made in the piece that got people very worked up was I argued for the exchanges, that the idea of people going into a, an organized market being able to see what they're buying with their own money, uh, look at competing plans, Cigna versus Aetna versus United versus, say, a local provider-owned plan, and and making that choice for themselves, knowing what the benefit is, because that's another thing that goes on in Obamacare, is we have a very clear sense of what we're buying, which is very not the, the situation for most people buying insurance today. And then they can price shop. They can figure out, I, I like Cigna's plan. I don't like Aetna's plan. I want more deductible here, and I want a lower cost share over there, or whatever it is. The idea of actually uh, of fixing what to me is a very opaque, difficult, broken, limited market, for especially for individual insurance, but certainly for small group insurance, and offering people more choices and giving them transparency and mobility does catalyze market forces and transparency and mobility and choice, all the things that are hallmarks of very uh, traditionally economic conservative ideas. Um, you put those two things together, and the, really the guts of Obamacare start to sound not so much like this dreaded government takeover of health care that we keep hearing about, which is political rhetoric. It's not reality. It's political rhetoric. And it sounds a whole lot like more like let's use market forces to try to tackle this, in addition to the other pieces that correct markets, like taking care of the medical discrimination, like dealing with the fact that health insurance is out of the reach of a lot of folks. Uh, and because I was making essentially a right-wing defense of what is perceived as a left-wing takeover health care, I pretty much uh, made everybody mad. <laughs> well, bravo. So it, it's also interesting to me that, uh, uh, you know, um, right-leaning uh, ideas of personal responsibility and uh, consumer choice, that the, the quid pro quo there is uh, is uh, is transparency and the opacity does not work. So it's hard to rational for me to reconcile the two. So wh why have the best and brightest minds in the health wonk space uh, have they abandoned their American health security Clintonian alternative uh, uh, in 2012 versus uh, advocating for it back in the mid 90s? Well, um, I'm not sure what you mean by they've abandoned. 
Because, well, you know, I have to say, uh, uh, go ahead. Could you well, clarify? Well, I'm, I'm not clear on that. What, I'm, what, I'm, what I mean is um, the, the, the individual mandate and the private market options was, was a response to the, the, uh, the American oh, Health Security it. Act, mm-hmm. the Clintonian mm-hmm. model. And he said, no, 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 that's, that's, that's a government takeover. That looks like Yeah, and that, well, and that was a government takeover. <laughs> yeah. yeah. That was. And, Greg, right. that's why people like myself are, were very much on record not supporting it. That was the uh, the Clinton plan in the 90s was very much a, a hyper-engineered, top-down approach. Everybody's going to toss in their insurance card, and, and basically we're going to start over, and we're going to re-engin- we're going to directly re-engineer markets. Uh, and that would that was scary to people. That truly was a government takeover, right? The Obamacare plan, despite all the scare rhetoric that's out there, most people will have exactly the same insurance provider they have a year from now. They'll have a few more benefits. They'll have no copays on some prevention, but for most people, it will look exactly like it does today. Okay, everything else is just fear mongering, right? By politicians. Uh, the Clinton plan was very different. It asked everybody, we're going to hit control, alt delete on everybody's coverage, and that you're going to get a new card in the mail, and trust us, it'll be fine. Nobody believed that, and that's why it failed. That's why it failed politically. That's why it failed um, uh, in terms of popular support. And, uh, um, the, and, and that's why people like me who are right down kind of the middle, who believe in markets and believe in, in competition and choice and all that stuff, but also recognize that markets often fail and need help, um, abandon that approach. It was a horrendous approach. Um, the other folks that I can speak for, the folks around me here at AEI who, who don't like the Obama plan, why they supported a lot of these ideas back in the 90s, it was an alternative to the Clinton plan. Um, if the Clinton plan was the only choice we had as a society in 1993, 1994, then going to a market-based solution that involved people buying insurance privately, people buying it um, in, in exchanges and all that stuff, that was as an alternative. And I have to say, that's the first answer. The second answer is purely political. Uh, Congress was a different animal in 1992, 1993, 1994. This stuff was sponsored by uh, 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 Chafee from Rhode Island and some other folks who were very much um, in the tradition of Rockefeller Republicans. They were centrist folks. Um, those kind of people don't really, they're, they're an endangered species here in Washington. Um, you know, we have no middle left in American politics. Everything's been in the centrifuge. Uh, and um, so the idea of a reasonable, balanced, market-based solution that does have government, some government oversight and that does have um, subsidies, that sort of is a relic. And there is not a tremendous amount of political middle left to support that. We end up, as you know, in most things, if you watch the debate last night, we have two very different paths that we're on, and it's very hard to reconcile them now. Well, and again, it's interesting that uh, uh, Obama's opponent, Governor Romney, uh, is the principal architect of Romney Care, which has served as a template for the Affordable Care Act. How, how you know, I understand maybe utilitarian approach that we liked it then because it was an alternative to Clinton government mandates, uh, government control, but today it's just not adequate enough for what meets the mark, the true market-based test. Well, and it's also, and this is something else I raised that I think annoyed a lot of people. Another point I raised that, you know, in retrospect, given the reaction to my piece is very um, much, it's about politics. 
it's not about healthcare. And, and somebody had said to me after uh, reading a lot of the, uh, the the sort of the vilification on the internet, they said to me, you know, you made the mistake of thinking this has anything to do with healthcare. Obamacare, the fight over Obamacare has nothing to do with healthcare. It has everything to do with political philosophy. Yeah. And um, it, it, this could be about what color we paint the road signs, or do we declare another, you know, federal holiday on uh, the, you know, the third Monday of April or whatever? Um, if Obama had done that and done it by getting it through a, a completely unilateral political process along party lines, if it had been about, you know, the adding a federal holiday, it, that would have been a government takeover of that Monday, right? It's about political rhetoric. Uh, the reason a lot of folks in this country don't like Obamacare is because it's called Obamacare, which, of course, they tried to use as a dirty word. Um, they did yeah. a political victory, and, and frankly, and in, def- and in defense of that point of view, and as a criticism to that process, I will say, if you're going to ram something through Congress along party lines and shove it down the throat of the minority party, you are going to pay for that later. You're going to have no support. You're, you're going to be carped and you're going to be criticized. The plan is going to be demagogued and misrepresented, and that's exactly what's happened. You mm-hmm. could say that that thing contains the cure for cancer, world hunger, you know, better, you know, uh, chicken in every pot. Doesn't matter what's in that plan. I can tell you, most of what people think is in that plan is not in that plan. I've read every word of it three times. It's 900 pages long. It's not 2,400 pages long, by the way, uh, as people like to believe that that. That's in that. You know, that's the most illustrative thing about this whole process. Our problem: people believe that the health reform plan is 2,400 pages long, because that's what people keep saying, and that's what Google tell, will tell you. Go download the PDF. It's 900 pages long. It's 906 pages. So, what's in the missing 1,500 pages? Well, all the boogeymen, all the things. Oh my think. God. Uh-huh. All the things, the death panels, the physicians being run out of practice, the employers being forced to drive you out of your plan, all the yeah. nonsense, all of the fear, all of the hysteria right. is totally driven by by political demagoguery because one party got to shove down their throat. And it, again, it doesn't matter what's in it. Um, they're going to make up anything they want to make up because they're mad. Yeah, and the irony perhaps crystallizing in, in the way the seniors are lining up against the Affordable Care Act, which is obviously in their interest to continue. So let's let's pivot from politics to maybe uh, innovation, both granular and macro. Let's talk about accountable care organizations. Too little, too late, or are they promising from your point of view? Well, it's um, it's it's I do I don't know if it's too little, too late, but thank God. Um, it has been an idea whose time came 30 years ago, um, but that doesn't mean that um, it's too late. Um, we, it's better late than never, I suppose, is a better, this would be my reaction. Um, the, you know, one of the wearying things about, the, about accountable care, which used to be called managed care, by the way, um, and the medical home, which used to be called the gatekeeper, and the uh, accountable care organization, which used to be called the integrated delivery network or PHO or whatever you wanted to call it. The reason it's wearyingly familiar and the reason a lot of people throw their arms up and say, my God, I saw this movie. I don't like how it turns out. <laughs> uh, is because these were good I- these are good ideas. These are every one of those ideas I just named that was formulated and promoted and sold and oversold and overpromised and underdelivered in the 90s was a good idea. 
and they're still good ideas. Getting doctors and hospitals to work together, having outcomes drive reimbursement, getting um, do you know creating incentives to do real care planning and real discharge planning. Those are great ideas. Um, there's stuff we wanted to do. People were writing about this in the late 80s, early 90s, and they were, and it reached a, an absolute fever pitch in 95, 96, 97. That was going to be the future, right? It was all going to be like everything was going to be organized into a Kaiser, into a, a vertically integrated payer organization that had hospitals and had doctors, and they all worked together. And you know what? That is the right way to do this. We know that from Kaiser. We know that from the VA, VHA. We know that from Intermountain Healthcare. Geisinger, there are a very small handful of systems around the country that are living that have been living that dream. It's difficult, it's complicated, um, but they they still exist. But you can count them on one hand. Uh, but all those ideas make sense. The problem is, is when we tried to do it the first time in the 90s, there was no real money involved. There was no re- reimbursement in play. Okay, I don't even need to continue beyond that. Um, because if there's no money, there will be no change. There'll be no action. People, people have, you know, their, their, you know, their 12 hour, 12 work hours in the day, and there are five work days in the week. And um, there's just so much that you can do while you're trying to run a complicated machine like a hospital or a physician practice, let alone try to turn the machine off and try to change it. So the only thing that gets anyone's attention is money. Um, now there's money in play. There's Medicare money in play. Even the payers are stepping up and doing it the right way. That was not the case in the 90s. There was a lot of talk about it, but there was not a lot of actual money in play. That was the first condition that's changed. The second condition is there's it's, there's real data now. No one had any information back in the 90s. There were no EMRs to speak of. No one understood risk. No one understood, Physicians didn't even know who their patients were. Everything was on paper. Everything was chaos. Nobody was organized. How do you share risk if you don't know what you're sharing risk over? And so that's changed. And then the third thing is we've had major cultural shifts. Back in the 90s, physicians thought managed care was a bad dream, and it would go away, (laughs) right? It's like Mm -hmm. um, this thing has happened, and now we're going to come in and save you from the big bad insurance company by integrating with you and going at risk and all this stuff. And it it was all a reaction to this horrible Nazi occupation of the physician profession by, you know, um, and uh, and physicians just, they really didn't want to do any of that stuff. They just didn't know what else to do. So they gave lip service. They also had, um, they had an escape option. They could sell their practice to a FICOR or a Med Partners or any of these other companies that existed in the 90s. And so physicians could sort of nod their heads, sure, I'm going to try that. I'll make do gain sharing or whatever we used to call it. And, 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 but I'm not going to really, you know, I'm not really in. I'm hoping this goes away. This is a dumb trend. And um, by the way, I could sell my business for a million dollars a physician in the old days. None of that is available to them now. Managed care is the bad dream that didn't go away. It's now called accountable care. There is There aren't any FICORs out there to bid up their assets and tell them they're worth all this money so that they don't really don't have to play. Uh, you know, that's a significant thing. And the generation of doctors has changed. Part and parcel of implementing the first point, my second point about data and EMRs, there's a whole generation of physicians now who use computers, who do, who engage in teamwork, who understand data and accountability. It's a different generation of people. You know, it was the sort of thing that you're not going to change the culture of being a doctor between 1995 and 1997. It really did take from 1995 to 2012 to computerize, to work like a team, 
to, 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 to not be afraid of data-driven accountability or outcomes measures or any of that other stuff. So those are the three conditions why I do believe we're not partying like it's 1999. It's why I do believe that accountable care, um, you know, is really ready for prime time after a horrendous false start in the 90s. And um, I just, you know, it keeps coming back as an idea because it's a good idea. Yeah, I think that's uh, well said. In fact, I think it's reasonable to say the the overwhelming weight of health policy thinking essentially supports the underpinnings of the Affordable Care Act. There are a few sort of marginal players who are arguing, you know, that that it's overbearing. But for the most part, the centrists who have been thinking about this for the last three, four decades pretty much say, yeah, it makes sense. Roll it up. Let's see what happens. So um, what if uh, any future for... Just quickly, any future for single-payer or Medicare E or expanding the federal health employee benefits to, to all Americans? you see that as a possibility? Um, uh, uh, in, in the wishful thinking of a lot of well-intentioned folks. Um, single-payer is, if people want to you know, believe that they're going to be a single-payer, I'll show them a public option. I'll sell them. We uh, couldn't even get a public option in this country, right? Um, single-payer is such a dead start in this uh, politically. Uh, yeah, it has nothing to do with the merits or, or demerits of that as a model or Medicare for all. But the very fact that half the country barely can support even, you know, no. It's just we don't even have a public option. This country wants the system it has. They want choice. They want options. They want privacy, freedom, all these other things. Single payer sounds like the exact opposite. Well, there you have it. That'll have to be the last word from J.D. Kleinke today. I appreciate your time, J.D. We just sort of scratched the, turf, the surface in these 30-minute 30, 30 segments on this subject. So I would encourage anyone who has not yet read the opinion piece, Query, the Conservative Case for Obamacare, New York Times. And we didn't get to the Hey Known Spender blog post on the healthcare blog. Those are additional insights by J.D. So. I want to thank my guest, J.D. We're coming to a hard stop at the half hour. This is Greg Masters. Please join us next week for another edition of This Week in Accountable Care. Bye now. Great. Thanks, Greg. Bye.
Was when I 